Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm in a bad mood. This is not a very good Toronto Blue Jays game last night. Our poor Buffalo Bisons are trying to make a playoff push as well. All their good players are up trying to drag the Toronto Blue Jays kicking and screaming into a playoff spot. Uh, they don't have help. Here's what you do. You send David Schneider, Ernie Clement, Spencer Horowitz, Nathan Lucas, send them all back down to AAA uh, to a team that actually wants to lock up a playoff spot. I kid, uh, but the Bisons have, uh, last week when we talked to Matt Haig, their hitting coach, they have tumbled out of the not out of the playoff picture, but they're in trouble now um, in that playoff race. And it's in part because their players are all with the Toronto Blue Jays, all their good offensive players. And those players continue to be the only guys with some exception, but, but for the most part, the guys trying to get it done for Toronto Blue Jays offense that only managed 15 runs over three games against a very bad Kansas city Royals team. Yes, they swept, but the bats weren't really going. They didn't hit a ton against Oakland either. And now through two games against Texas, uh, they've scored only seven runs. Now, seven runs isn't the end of the world. They've actually gotten to Texas's bullpen a couple times, a 540 ERA for that Rangers bullpen through two games of this series, but they haven't gotten to it early enough. They haven't gotten to it often enough. It took Max Scherzer uh, straining his tricep yesterday or, or feeling spasms in his tricep yesterday during delivery to get him out of the game. He had been shut out through, uh, he had thrown five and a third shutout innings. The bats are not going at all. At the very top of that list is Bobichet, are Bobichet and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who are combined 0 for 16 in this series, who have a combined, I don't know, 13 plate appearances that make you want to pull your hair out. Things are not great. Hey, Spencer Horwitz did a decent job filling in for Brandon Belt, who's now on the IL. David Schneider had a pair of hits, including a home run. Kevin Biggio continues to be the hottest hitter on the roster for several months now. Uh, those are not the guys who sh should be dictating w the way this team goes. If you look across the aisle at the Texas Rangers, Marcus Simeon didn't have a very good game yesterday, but Corey Seager sure did. Uh, Jonah Heim came up in a, in a big spot the day prior. It's uh, it's dire right now, and it's not dire in the big picture of things. The Toronto Blue Jays remain tied for the final wildcard spot today. However, yesterday's game felt big in a number of ways. Not only is it a, a second consecutive loss and, and all the good vibes of Sunday are, are well behind you now. Well, look, you've fallen at, you entered this series a game and a half up on Texas. You're now half a game behind them. You could still salvage that the rest of the series but you certainly have failed to make up ground in this series already. You've also now given Texas the tiebreaker. So when we look at a wild card race that is very, very tight, those tiebreakers are on the table and they could matter. Texas Rangers will have the tiebreaker against the Toronto Blue Jays and the Seattle Mariners, while they split the season series, the next tiebreaker is record in your own division. And th that's not locked in yet because both teams have a lot of division games left, but the Jays would have something like 10 games to make up. Basically, if the Jays do well enough over these last 15 game AL, uh, games against the AL East, if they do well enough that they'd win the tiebreaker against Seattle, they've done well enough that the tiebreaker won't matter. So for all intents and purposes, they have the tiebreaker over Houston, but not against Texas or Seattle. And this thing could come down to the wire with a pair of losses. The Jays playoff odds have dropped from 79.2% to 61.4%. Some element of, hey, at least Seattle and Texas have to play each other a bunch still. None of those three teams you're in the mix with have been particularly great. 
but you entered this series in such great control of your playoff fate. Take three against Texas. You'd have the tiebreaker. You'd be three and a half up. You'd be, you know, carrying that momentum from beating up on a bunch of bad teams. All of that was on the table. And two games into this series now, you don't have the tiebreaker. You're behind Texas in the standings. You are hanging on for a split here that would, yes, give you some insulation in the actual standings. But this element of you being in control of all aspects of your playoff push is now eroded a little bit. You win two more in this series, you can at least be sure that if you win out the rest of the way, uh, you'll make it. But yeah, the tiebreakers out of your hands. How the Texas and Seattle seven games go is out of your hands. We joked a little bit with Ben Nicholson-Smith yesterday about how the night before... You're a game that really affected you came down to Trent Thornton pitching against Randall Grichuk in a game that did not involve the Toronto Blue Jays. That's what you don't want to happen. And the Blue Jays had the chance coming in this series to make sure that they were above that nonsense these last couple weeks. They can get back there to a lesser degree if they take the next two games of this series, but they've squandered some real opportunity here. Uh, Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic joins us now to help sort through that. Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, you know, been watching these last few games. You say squander opportunity. It's like, that doesn't sound like the 2023 Blue Jays, does it? Or is huh. it exactly what they've uh, been doing all season long? Yeah. What if you had the best pitching, arguably the best pitching staff in baseball and the bats just didn't do much? What if you got tons of runners on base for four months and just didn't hit with runners in scoring position for four months? What if every time you could go on a winning streak, you just had these weird games or, or weird series where, where you just lapse baseball is a long season. A lot of that stuff happens to everyone. It feels like that has been the only mode of this Toronto blue Jays team, Caitlin. Yeah. I mean, I have been one, like, how do I say this? Like it's, it's been a while now where I've wondered why this team doesn't seem to ride momentum the way that you sort of expect that they could um, like mid season or whatever, when you're talking about like June and July, it's like, okay, like momentum's whatever. Like it's still kind of the middle of the season. There's so much baseball left. One loss really doesn't matter all that much. You know, I know every game matters, but blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you're just, you're not feeling like that sort of urgency in July when you're thinking hmm, maybe they should get on a run here. But like, I remember being in Baltimore, I guess in August it was, and it was a big series against Baltimore and they really like, needed to win because you know they've lost so much to baltimore and it was like the final time they had an opportunity to just win a series at least against their division rival and they were in baltimore and they won that game in extra innings and brandon bell hit the home run and i remember thinking like okay like this has to be a sort of win that rallies them like this has to be a moment where they can just ride this wave of like you know positive vibes and they didn't they lost the next two and they lost the series to the Orioles as per usual and (laughs) and it just like it feels like even in that run where they were playing like bad teams you know they didn't string together enough in a row yeah they swept the Royals but it felt like they you know had an opportunity to string six seven eight games in a row together which you know really would feel good for a team like the Blue Jays especially at the moment they were in you got you know and it just didn't happen and now, yeah, you talk about you have all this momentum in the Kansas series and it was at home and you have the Rangers coming in and they at the time they'd lost like 16 of their last 22. Their bullpen was really shaky. You know, the confidence of the team in theory was shaky. And 
you know, you just play these two games where it wasn't super competitive. The first five or so innings, I guess, of the first game were. I was impressed with the way they came out initially outside of, like, the weird Chris Bassett play. But, yeah, it's just been two kind of games where it feels like the energy is not there. And part of that has been somewhat of a small crowd. And hmm. it just has been so strange these last two games. So Caitlin, you look, we, we, you know, you just laid out the fact that momentum hasn't really existed for this Blue Jays team. And Dan Schulman, you know, was on with me the other day and kind of said, yeah, the momentum, you know, the old cliche of momentum is only as good as your next day's starting pitcher. But that's part of it with the Blue Jays is they have five good starting pitchers yeah. who have been really good all year. Um, so that's supposed to be the kind of thing that lets you roll, um, you know, good, good games and good series into good weeks and good months and things like that. They haven't really done that. This is a, a weird stat and kind of picking arbitrarily, but I was looking at it coming into this series. There hasn't been a two-week stretch this year where they've gone better than 10 and 4. Now, obviously, going 10 and 4 is really good. If you did that all season, you'd be incredible. But, like, they're really, for one week, for two weeks, there hasn't been a sustained stretch where they look amazing. Now, having said all of that, the same thing, you know, if, if that's your logic about momentum in the positive, maybe that's your logic about momentum in the negative as well. The Blue Jays also haven't lost very many games in a row. They haven't had very many stretches where they've been bad. So, Caitlin, you you wrote heading into this series that, you know, when you were matching these two teams up, it's like, yeah, Texas still has a really good offense. The Jays have the pitching advantage. And then you had a, a little, uh, I think, one paragraph at the end that was, yeah, the Jays have a significant advantage in the vibes department, given the recent records of both. So that's obviously obviously changed through these first two games here but does the Jays does their lack of positive momentum at times at least give you a little bit of confidence that hey they also haven't let this stuff these things snowball on them at all this season yeah I mean it goes back to what I've written about before and we've talked about before and that like has this Blue Jay season been bad no it's been good. Like if you look at the record, like they're right in the playoff hunt, they have a winning record. I think a few days ago, they were like 13 games above 500, which I think was a season high. Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons to point to the season being good. Like you look at the Yankees, you look at the Red Sox, there's teams all over the league that are having, you know, worse seasons, objectively bad seasons. The Blue Jays season is not objectively bad. It's objectively good. It just hasn't been great. It hasn't been thrilling. It's been disappointing because there was higher expectations, you know, all these things that we've always talked about. And so, yeah, they've not been really, really bad. They've kind of held their own. They've, for the most part, won games that they should against bad teams. I think that even if we go back and say, well, they didn't sweep the A's and they didn't sweep the Rockies, well, they still won those series. And, you know, it is tough to sweep all the time even really really good teams don't sweep a ton I think like the Blue Jays don't have that many fewer sweeps than you know someone like the Orioles or something so you know I don't think that the Blue Jays season has been bad and the one of the reasons for that is as you laid out like they haven't had a lengthy time where they were losing a ton the only time I can think of is May where they, it was a really bad month for them but even so, I don't think that um, it was stretches of a ton of losses in a row. Um, it, they sort of were able to, like, muster some wins in there. I remember, like, that game where they scored, like, 20 runs against the Rays or something. You're like, hmm, maybe there's some momentum here. And then it was, like, immediately erased with a loss the next day. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're, all, we're <laughs> just kind of wrapping all these themes into one here. But, yeah, I, like, 
I guess to to your point, then maybe that means the Blue Jays are going to win the next two because they don't seem to lose that many in a row, and they seem to be able to salvage splits when they need to. So maybe they will go here and win the next two because a four-game lose streak would you know be a lengthy one for this time of year and one of their lengthier ones in a while. Yeah, I think it would be their their second longest of the season. The the stretch you're referring to in late May, two and nine over an eleven game stretch. And within that, Caitlin, if we're going to use the inability or or I guess ability to not you know, lose a ton of games in a row and let bad days and bad series snowball. Um, it is worth noting that the one time that that happened, it included Baltimore and Tampa Bay. And if we look at the Blue Jays right now and who stands in a playoff spot, keeping in mind the Blue Jays aren't one of those teams because they'd lose the tiebreaker if the season ended today. They're 14 and 24 against American League playoff teams. Now, that is probably a, a deflated record just because of just how bad they've been against Baltimore going, going three and 10 against them. But when you look at, you know, I know we can do splits like, Hey, they're 18 and four against sub 400 competition. This is the record against 500. When you narrow it down to the other American league East teams, you know, there's a, a randomness to that, the, the lack of momentum factor, but you know, they're 14 and 24 against the teams they could potentially see in the playoffs. It very much feels like, like obviously the, Hey, you win four out of every seven games every week. That makes them feel like, a good but not great team. When you look at that, they've taken care of the worst teams in the league, been pretty good against the 500-ish teams, and then been really bad against the teams they could see in the playoffs. That, to me, also speaks to, hey, on overall quality at this point, 140-some-odd games into the season, maybe this team just grades out as, yeah, they're the sixth or seventh best team in the American League. Is that... Have you started to nudge in that direction or, or is there still enough up in the air that, that you you don't want to go that far yet? No, I, I sort of had been thinking about that yesterday, even just like watching the game unfold. And I'm thinking like, okay, well let's just say like the Blue Jays do sort of figure it out here. They win the next two and then they go and win the remaining series in their season and they get into the postseason and they you know, finish whether it's in the second or third wild card spot, and you're you're either matched up with the Twins, I suppose, or or the Rays. I just thought, like, how like how do we feel about the Blue Jays in either of these series? Now, I know I know people joke about the Twins and the, the Central, and understandably so, it's a bad division and whatever. But you know, the Twins are a pretty good team. They have a lot of good pitching. Yeah, I was gonna say their pitching is really really good, and yet yeah, so is the Blue Jays pitching. And I've said for a long time that like. I I think the Blue Jays like should be well matched in the playoff series because I do think they have good pitching. I think that they're four four or five starters, but certainly like the top four starters on the rotation. Whoever they decide those could be, because I think you can make an argument for a, a different combination. That is a rotation that any team would take into the postseason. I think the bullpen, the back end of the bullpen's been really good. I think that you'd feel good about that situation it's just like the offense do you have any confidence that the offense will be able to score because it's just been so inconsistent this year i think that you're missing some key bats right now which you're feeling i was thinking yesterday you know the belt situation isn't great but he'd been been out for a while and dealing with the back and the sickness and all that i just thought yesterday like feels like they're missing danny jansen like mm-hmm. danny jansen had been really hitting well does hit for power. One of the few guys that like you can kind of rely on to hit for a double or a home run. He does quite a bit. So I just felt like yesterday they were missing that. And yeah, just like to answer your question, 
I had been thinking, now I'm not going to say outright, like, if the Blue Jays get into the postseason, they're going to lose. Like, I don't know. Like, they could get hot. Like, I know that that's something that people just say. And But it's possible, right? Like It's true. Again, it happens every year. Some team that wasn't yeah. that great will look better in the playoffs. But I don't. I think your point that, you, that you're getting to here is you don't want to rely on, hey, random stuff happens in the playoffs. You'd rather be going to the playoffs thinking you're a good team. Right. And, like, so do we think, the Blue Jays are a good team and how do we like how do we assess that and like one of the like we can say on talent alone yes this team is really really good but on the record that they put up this year going against teams that they could face in the postseason or teams that are in a postseason position right now they have a losing record and a kind of significant losing record. So, okay, so you mentioned in there that, you know, part of this is you you trust the rotation and look, everyone has ups and downs in the rotation. Chris Bassett wasn't that awesome last time out. You know, Han Jin Ryu was just fine yesterday, although very nice to see him get through uh, six innings because he was just so pitch efficient that the Jays had to finally let him go. Um, but yeah, you look across and let's say it is the Twins. Let's say you get the best case scenario down the stretch here and it's wild card three and you're at target field and Blue Jays fans show up and things like that. Uh, Pablo Lopez and Sonny Gray are both in the Cy Young discussion. I, I don't know that, um, you know, you feel super, super great about that when it comes to your bats. Now, it's this is an oversimplification, of course, but a lot of this, Caitlin, really feels like, hey, if their best hitters were hitting a little better, you maybe have more confidence in them turning this series around against Texas or doing some damage in a series against Minnesota. If we go back to the beginning of August, so we're looking at like a, almost a 40-game span there. George Springer has been really, really good. Davis Schneider, awesome. Kevin Biggio, a really nice surprise. Even Kiermaier uh, and Belt, who's obviously on the aisle right now, they've hit pretty well in that stretch. But Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has a 702 OPS since the start of August. That is a, you know, if we want to use WRC plus to adjust for park factors and compare across the league, that's about 5% below an average hitter period. Not an average first baseman, an average hitter period. Uh, Whit Merrifield has a 561 OPS during that stretch. Dalton Varsho's hot streak has kind of dissipated and cooled off. Um, they're obviously asking a, a lot from Alejandro Kirk right now defensively, but his bat has been pretty up and down. Matt Chapman before the IL was hitting 197 since the start of August with just a 256 uh, OBP. So not very good numbers there from some key pieces, but I do wonder Caitlin, how much of this and certainly the first two games of this series for you comes down to Bo and Vlad are combined 0 for 16. And even if it's not fair to hang everything on them, uh, show me the team that's going to feel good about two games when their two best hitters have gone a combined 0 for 16. Yeah, I think that that is what's standing out so far. And yeah, and then contrast that with the Rangers, who admittedly it's mostly Corey Seager. Um, but Simeon and Seeger have been kind of leading the way or, or doing their job, I guess, at the top of their lineup. And that has been somewhat of the difference. I mean, the Rangers are getting production from other places as well. You know, you score 10 runs, you get, you get a lot of production from a lot of different guys. And the Blue Days aren't getting that really anywhere. Um, you know, David Schneider hits the home run and you have some, you know, Kevin Biggio has been great uh, defensively, offensively. I've been so impressed with him lately. Um, but yeah, the Blue Jays really it comes down to not getting enough from the top of their lineup and 
you think back to last year and you think like, why did they go on that run in September and why did they distance themselves and secure a wild card spot and home field advantage and all that? It was because Bo went on a complete awesome tear and he led the way and he, I wouldn't say he single-handedly took them there, but certainly he was a huge reason why. I mean, there were actually some games where he probably won himself. I can't remember all the details now, but I do remember like a multi-home run game in Baltimore and just scoring a ton of runs there and just kind of really, really leading the way and putting the team on his back to some extent. So that's what I remember last year, and that's usually like what it takes. And I know I talked to some guys, and I talked to Brandon Bell a little while ago, and you know, he talked about the fact that at this time of year, you really need different guys to step up on different days. And that's been the case. And has the Blue Jays seen that? Sure. There's been some days where, you know, it has been Davis Schneider stepping up. There's been days where it's Kevin Biggio. And you've seen that a little bit. But I do think, like, and George Springer, right? Like, there, there was a game um, against the Royals where George basically single-handedly won it. And so you're seeing that a little bit. But you kind of need it from those big guys. Like, you, you know, what, what's what been such a strange thing to see for the Blue Jays is it's like it feels like you're like the Rangers for example like you kind of think at any moment they could hit a home run they're a really good home running home run hitting team and they have a ton of power in their lineup and the Blue Jays just have not had that that year this year and so it doesn't you know when they go down by multiple runs it feels like they've got to chip away every time it has to be this like continued rally where they string hits together and that's hard to do like you're not getting that one big hit a lot of the time that scores multiple runs. If you put it over the fence, like that's, and the guys are on base, that's three runs or four runs right right there. And the Blue Jays just haven't been able to do that this year. And Caitlin, I think, you know, Brandon Belt's point about, hey, you need contributions from everyone. Yes, that's absolutely true. But you also need a baseline from your top guys. And yes. you mentioned Bo's hot September in 2022. If we go back to 2021, there was that stretch in late August through mid-September where the Jays win 15 of 18. And that puts them back in the playoff race. And obviously they came up a game short and, you know, they lost some games to, to Minnesota and to Tampa Bay down the stretch there. But that stretch where they won 15 of 18 um Bobachet for the month of September had almost a 1000 OPS and Vlad cooled off right at the end but there was a three-week stretch there where he looked like he had in the first half of the season and it's honestly there's a three-week stretch where that is the counter argument to the well he just did it in Buffalo and Dunedin was there was like a chunk of the season where he was um again one of the the best hitters in baseball there down the stretch so uh yeah it, it's great to get contributions from David Schneider and what Kevin Biggio has been able to do for them is amazing but that's supposed to be the stuff that, you know, Vlad and Bo keep you in games against Texas and then guys like Biggio and Schneider, you know, win, help win those games for you, push you over the line. Um, not that they're the ones dragging you to score three and four runs against Texas or, or five runs against Kansas City. Um, let's turn it a little bit positive though or I guess there's a, a silver lining um here Caitlin so you mentioned Brandon Belt he's gonna he's on the IL now dealing with uh lumbar back spasms they keep getting more and more specific with these uh back injuries <laughs> what, what was it for sw thoracic sw spine inflammation and now we've got uh lumbar spine muscle spasms uh nice of them to designate the part of the back anyway Brandon Belt to the IL, it's obviously not a good thing. He's been one of their best hitters all year. He's been one of their best hitters in that chunk since the start of August that we we just took a look at. Danny Jansen's not coming back. If Matt Chapman comes back, I think we're probably thinking of that as a defensive boost more than an offensive boost, given how his season's gone since the start of May. Um, but at the very least, there at least appears to be a path to keeping David Schneider and Kevin Biggio in the lineup 
pretty regularly this next little bit. Do you see that similarly? Yeah, I mean, you can mix up the DH a little bit now. Like, you know, if you DH Vlad, for example, you can have Biggio at first base, and there's, you know, you can DH David Schneider, and there's various things. And, you know, you talked about Witt earlier in this conversation, and I guess he's dealing with some sort of groin soreness, which obviously hasn't put him on the IL, but if he's not feeling great and hasn't been hitting great and maybe those two things are connected, maybe you just keep Davis Schneider in there because he's producing for you. And so uh, I do think that we can, or uh, John Schneider, I should say, does have to sort of do away with, you know, everybody gets playing time here and it's whoever's hitting is in the lineup. And if that's Vigio, you got to respect that. You got to find a way to get him in. And I understand you want Matt Chapman back there in third base, even though Vigio's looked really good at third base, but you know, Matt Chapman is Matt Chapman at third base. You find a way to get Vigio in there, you know, whether it's moving some thin around in, in the outfield or it's, you know, DHing Vlad a little bit more down the stretch because you want to have him at first base or something. And I think that you have to do that. Okay, so Caitlin, that is uh, what is currently going on with this team. Uh, if we so obviously the the rest of this series, you know, we got Kikuchi against Jordan Montgomery tonight, Kevin Gosman against Nate Valdi uh, tomorrow. You can feel, I mean, those are not even pitching matchups. You'd probably lean, or well, you certainly lean toward Gosman, and then Kikuchi Montgomery is more pick your chunk of the season and see which way you lean. But the Blue Jays are still well suited to, to beat this Rangers team if, if they can get things, if they can actually do the things. Um, and then they're going to face Boston, New York, Tampa, New York, Tampa, the rest of the way. It's a little early to look ahead to those, Caitlin, but the 15 games down the stretch, all against American League East opponents, um, Boston and New York, not in the wild card race, but they're kind of doing this thing where they're fighting for fourth place and both are trying to stay above 500. Tampa Bay still has the division within their sights when it comes to uh, their gap. I think they're only three games back of Baltimore right now. Uh, what do you make of, you know, if we look ahead past the Texas series, let's say the rest of this goes okay, maybe they split these last two or come away with a split altogether. That 15-game stretch against, yeah, uh, nine of those games are not playoff teams, but they're going to be teams that want to win and want to play spoiler. How do you feel about these next two and a half weeks overall? Yeah, it's going to be very important. I think that it's easy. it was easy to just circle this Texas series over and over and over again and say this is the series, this is the series that's going to you know, really heavily determine playoff position and seating and all that and it's true like this was a really important series um to you know put texas away or determine the tiebreaker we both know that's neither of those things are happening now but i think that the new york games the boston games coming up and all those games against the rays are really like obviously going to determine the blue jay season like if they you know lose a bunch of those games and fall out they could fall out of the race and yeah like the the season has been weird lately between the Ash, well, the, the AL West, those teams in the AL West essentially, and then the Blue Jays because it's like none of those teams are really like winning their way to the wild card race. It's like they're all just trying to like lose a little bit less than somebody else. Like no team is really like seizing it. I think even Houston is playing the A's right now, and I think they've they've lost um, to the A's. And then we saw Seattle lose that wild game. I know they won last night, hmm. but they lost the night before that wild extra inning game to the angels. And so, you know, none of the teams are really like seizing it or running away with it, which is, I guess, a good thing for the blue Jays. But yeah, like the, to answer your question about these upcoming games against the AL East, those are really, really big. The blue Jays probably caught somewhat of a break that the Yankees have been really hit 
hard by injuries very recently losing even some of their young players that just came up that actually were kind of making mm-hmm. them fun and somewhat more competitive. Um, I think Dominguez is um, gone now for a while. Right. So um, I think that, that they've probably caught a break a little bit there with like the Yankees, because I saw, I saw like the lineup posted yesterday and I think our writer, uh, Chris Kirshner kind of joked, like this looks like a spring training lineup <laughs> because <laughs> of the names that were in there for the Yankees. So, you know, I think that those games to me look winnable, but the Rays games are really important because I do think the Rays play Baltimore coming up here. I think they have one more four-game series left against Baltimore, which obviously is really going to heavily determine whether they're in the division lead or if they're a game within it or very close. So even so, I think Tampa probably has the first wild card spot pretty much like wrapped up and, mm-hmm. but they still will be going for the division, which is going to be really important. And they've been playing really well. I know they had that awful July, but they've been really good since. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that Yankees lineup, by the way, uh, I look forward to this battle. Uh, Austin Wells might have the, he's the catching for them pretty much every day right now. Uh, he might be the only player in baseball that has a claim at a, a thicker, more lustrous mustache than Davis Schneider. Uh, so we'll have to keep uh, an eye out for that one. Uh, Caitlin, someone we won't see in the series. And before I let you go here, I, I know look, we talked about it with, with Ben Nicholson Smith yesterday on the show and last week a little bit, but I know you had some reporting on it at the athletic yesterday as well. Um, when it comes to the Alec Manoa situation, I think we've all put him out of our little notebooks for any 2023 involvement. Um, what do you, what do you make of what the next steps are for just getting Alec Manoa ready for 2024, both on the mound? And I'd imagine there's some relationship repair that maybe needs to be done here too. Yeah, I think it's going to be, to me, this is probably, there's a lot of big off season stories for the Blue Jays. If you look at, yeah, maybe the fallout of this season, you know, if they don't make the play, playoffs or, or what, or if they get bounced immediately, there's going to be some fallout from that. There's going to be a lot of guys heading into free agency. There's going to be extension talk in terms of Bo and, and Vlad. And then I think the other big story, and maybe the biggest story is Manoa. Like what, what is going to happen with Manoa? How do you rebuild this relationship? How do you get him in a better place, both um, you know, mentally and mechanics-wise and physically and everything needed to for him to sort of rediscover himself on the mound and get back to who he was? I think that this is going to be a, a, a story that I think probably like more is going to come out in the offseason because it feels like right now the Blue Jays do have their focus kind of on the games ahead and the task at hand and and knowing that Manoa is probably not going to hit pitch again you know at all competitively he's probably looking ahead to next year too so you're not really going to have any sort of questions or answers in terms of you know how he's looking and how the mechanics are looking like that's going to be something we're going to have to wait for next year but yeah like that to me is something that is going to kind of dominate off-season discussion a little bit about just the whole Everything about this story, um, about Manoa and the Blue Jays and the relationship and how do you get back to a good place for team and player going forward. It's going to be a tough one, and it's kind of a, a great unknown, right? It's not like we can uh, be in the Dunedin complex all winter, or uh, I know in your piece, uh, Alec Manoa's camp declined to comment, which I'd imagine they're going to continue to to do, and, and maybe they uh, you know, they try to go with the, yeah, we'll comment with performance in 2024, but this story feels like it's going to get less comfortable before it gets more comfortable again. Uh, Caitlin McGrath, thanks for taking the time out this morning. I'll see you down at the park a little later. 
Awesome. Thanks. Kayla McGrath of The Athletic, uh, like I mentioned, some good reporting over there on the Alec Manoa story that, that we've been following for the, the last couple weeks here. Um, also, some some good write-ups off of these last couple games. Although, the quotes the Toronto Blue Jays gave in those Sunday and Monday pieces uh, do not look good in the light of Wednesday morning. Weird thing, the last two nights, the attendance for these Jays games has been very, very low. Uh, it was season low on Monday night. Last night, it rebounded a little bit. Uh, to a little over 30,000. That's not terrible, but for a team that has been filling that place up and is, was second in the American League in average attendance heading into this series, it was a little surprising. It, it's also really amusing to me to think about, hey, yeah, uh, Monday night game in September only, quote-unquote, got 24,000 people out or whatever the number was. It wasn't all that long ago that the Rogers Center was not particularly full. You could walk up and get a nice uh, cheap ticket at the very last minute. If you go back as far as 2010, uh, early in the season, and hey, 2010 was not a year where the Blue Jays were bad, by the way. They finished with 85 wins that season. They were drawing like 10,000 to games early in the year. If you were at a game on April 29, 2010, you would have been one of just a little over 10,000 who saw John Buck hit three home runs in one game. It's a bit of a, do you even remember that? Uh, a day where Fred Lewis leads off in the lineup. Jose Batista hits seventh playing third base. It's a bit of a weird relic of a game, but sometimes those are the games that mean a lot to you or stick out to you or get attached to something else that happened in your life. And I mentioned that because a Toronto band that I'm very, very fond of called Pew 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 wrote and released a song. They have an album coming out on Friday, but uh, a single that they've released just the other day is called the night John Buck hit three home runs. Uh, why did they write about the night John Buck hit three home runs? Why does that game stand out? Uh, why is lead singer Mike Warren just kind of standing in the lake in the music video? Uh, we're going to ask Mike Warren and Kate McLean of Pew 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 next, and we're going to remember the John Buck three home run game. See how they're feeling as they head out on the road. They're going to have to follow this playoff race from on the road. Always fun to hear what those superstitions and uh, streaming strategies are like. Uh, the band Pew Pew Pew, who have the song The Night John Buck hit three home runs. They join us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is a very fun track that came out last week by a Toronto band I'm very fond of called Pew Pew Pew. The song is called The Night John Buck Hit Three Home Runs. Mike Warren and Kate McLean of Pew 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 join us right now. Uh, Kate, I'm going to start with you. Uh, good morning. How are you? Uh, how are you feeling after last night? Good morning. I'm okay. A little disappointed, as I'm sure many Jays fans are this morning, but hanging in there. Uh, Mike. Uh, good morning to you as well. Man, this song comes out. I, I got to say, the video stood out to me more initially than the song, but this is obviously a deeply personal one to you as a Blue Jays fan and given the content uh, of the song and what you're singing about in it. Uh, how how has it been having this out there in the world now? Um, I mean, it's like, it's a little uncomfortable for me to be 
kind of that open. If you followed the band, it's kind of our heaviest song yet. Um, you know, my disclaimer for it though mm. is that it's a happy song to me. So can we go into that a little bit more? So uh, obviously the the subject matter of the song, if anyone hasn't heard it yet, is you know the the, the night your your grandfather passed away. Um, John Buck hit three home runs, and you guys had this deep baseball connection. I know I know you've tweeted about it uh, a lot, and you you had said this is a song about watching baseball uh, with your best friend for as long as you're allowed to, um, if you feel comfortable. Can, can you share a little bit more about that sentiment with us? Yeah, I mean. It's, uh, like I say, it's a happy memory because it's, it's just funny how sports, like, work their way into your life in kind of an acceptable way on, like, a weird night. And it was just a really positive distraction, you know? And, then, like, when I say it's a happy song for me, it's like my grandfather was nearly 100 years old, so good life. Um, <laughs> And, like, if he was around, all he would be talking about was John Buck that night. So, yeah, we watched baseball. Um, that's really nice. John Buck has heard the song as well and called it, end quote, dope. Um, how did you get it into yeah. the hands of John Buck, and what was that chat like? I just, I just messaged him on Instagram, and I just started with, hey, I wrote a song about you. And then I explained everything. <laughs> like, you know, it was, it was a positive distraction. I think about it all the time. Um, you know, just, it was a cool night. And, uh, yeah, for him to write back, his first line was, this song is dope. And I was like, <laughs> okay, John Buck's cool. Uh, well, the song is dope. Uh, Kate, I'm curious. I know you you have only recently joined Pew 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 on guitar and keys. You join the band. You're, you're having fun. And then they tell you, hey, by the way, uh, Kate, we know you're a big baseball fan. We've got this song about John Buck coming. What do you think? <laughs> what, what was your initial reaction to that? Um, so I actually heard that I got a sneak peek of the record uh, before I joined the band. And uh, I've been a big fan of Pew for a few years now. So this is obviously a very surreal, exciting thing. And so to have a baseball song, well, another one. We actually have another tune called The Prime Minister of Defense. <laughs> <laughs> so we know who that's about. Um, but uh, it was so cool to have another baseball song in the repertoire because it's a big part of my life. Uh, Kate, do you have memories from, if not that 2010 season, is there a John Buck three home run game for you? One of the, you know, random games that didn't really maybe mean a lot to the entire season, but has stuck with you for whatever reason? <laughs> you know what? It's not actually a game so much as it was a signing. Uh, I am fairly a fairly recent Blue Jays convert. Okay. Uh, I got brought into the fold in the 2015 hype. <laughs> And um, it was actually a signing that I, I don't think I'll ever forget. And it's when the team signed Kevin Gosman, because I've been a huge fan of him from fantasy baseball. <laughs> and suddenly to find out that he was on the team, uh, I remember I was in, sitting at my kitchen chair and I got up and I did like a little jig in the kitchen. <laughs> so uh, obviously there's a fantasy baseball element there. Mike, I know you guys run a Pew and Friends fantasy football league. Uh, go Birds, of course. But uh, how, how did uh, week one turn out for you? Well, we won um, in pretty, pretty solid fashion. <laughs> um, last night was the first night of waivers. So I'm up at four in the morning, <laughs> which... I hate about myself, um, but, and then all morning, it's just like, oh, did we get the right people? Do we, uh, you know, it's a lot. 
it is. But, I lived yeah, on the West fun. Coast briefly, and that was the biggest advantage of, you know, for Ooh. fantasy sports of being on the West Coast was I could just stay up a little late until the waiver emails hit instead of getting up first thing in the morning. So just a heads up. I know you guys have a big tour coming up. If any of those are West Coast dates, you can kind of game the system a little bit. Uh, that way. Okay. So put that on your radar. I um, never thought of that. <laughs> so, Mike, uh, Sick Days comes out on uh, next Friday on Stomp Records. You guys are doing shows next weekend in Tilsonburg and Cornwall. And then you're hitting the U.S. for a tour for most of October. Now, it's not your first time touring. I'm sure it's not your first time touring during big games for the Toronto Blue Jays. But what is the game plan? What is the strategy for managing Jays fandom while you guys are on the road and maybe having some set time, game time overlaps? Yeah, I mean, I'm like a little ashamed to say, but we've definitely watched some big games while we're on stage before. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I mean, most notoriously was was Ryan uh, setting up his his phone on a spare mic stand for like a Packers playoff game. But <laughs> usually, I'm like a a phone at the feet kind of guy, <laughs> and a, and it's just a, a check in every now and then. That's that's not a bad way to do. I do feel like baseball maybe lets you do that the most because yeah. the pace of the game a little bit. Um, Kate, when you are if you're looking ahead to this, are you? Since you've become a, a Blue Jay convert, are there any superstitions or things like that, or things you, you're gonna like boxes you're gonna need to check to feel good about the games if you can't have an eye on it? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I hope that I'm gonna get to be allowed to wear my Jays jersey on stage. Of sometimes. course, you know, I feel like it would be fitting. Um, but <laughs> probably, I have a tendency. Honestly, I have a tendency if the Jays have won a playoff game and I didn't watch it. I then wrestle with myself constantly <laughs> to be like, do I just not watch the next game because they won because I didn't watch? So there'll be some moral quandaries going on, I'm sure. That'll be a tough one. And, you know, uh, Mike, I know you're an Eagles guy. I don't know if you're an always sunny in Philadelphia guy, but the the clear thing in that show when the Eagles won the Super Bowl is every <laughs> single thing a fan does affects the outcome of the game. Uh, you yeah. have to keep that uh, in mind. Uh, Mike, I asked Kate off the top, but uh, Jays lose two in a row here. If the season ended today, they're on the outside looking in uh, of the playoffs, but kind of in control of their own destiny here with a couple more against Texas and, and a few weeks still to go. How are you feeling about where the Jays sit right now I mean I'm wishing that the stars would shine (laughs) it's it's a bummer when you know like the last couple nights you you guys are getting on base guys are hitting and then Bo and Vladdy come up and the innings over it's a it's a tough one for sure they're 0 for 16 over these two games it's a it's a rough one Um, but we know they're good enough we, you know, like they're the guys that are supposed to do it. So maybe they'll just start doing it tonight. Maybe. And like I talked about, I was just talking to Caitlin McGrath of the athletic and she pointed out that, yeah, Bo got red hot each of the last two Septembers. So maybe, uh, maybe that's ahead if he's feeling a little better. Uh, Kate, you say Kikuchi on the mound today, Kevin Gosman, your guy on the mound tomorrow. Um, <laughs> how high has your confidence level in Kikuchi grown this year relative to, to where it was last year? Oh my gosh, I am so happy you're talking about Kikuchi because I think if there is a bright spot, uh, well, that, there's lots of bright spots. It's hard to think about them right now, but they're there. But Kikuchi is certainly one. I mean, he's having the best season of his career. 
Like, that's so cool. Uh, confidence has grown immensely this year. I do wonder if the pitch clock has actually helped him hmm. because sometimes it felt like you say Kikuchi's worst enemy would be himself every now and then. Yeah, that's uh, that is certainly a, a th- a possibility. Uh, we've seen some guys thrive with it a little bit. Some guys uh, less so thrive with it. Um, Mike, before I let you go here, I, I know it's it's music first, but was it you that that drew the Dave Winfield thing that you guys posted the other day? <laughs> yes. Why is Dave Winfield on, on your mind right now? And, and not only, not even Blue Jays Dave Winfield, where like at 40 years old, he turns the clock back, but like San Diego Padres era Dave Winfield. What What's going on in, in your mind to bring Dave Winfield up? I don't, I just think about him a lot because he got <laughs> drafted by four uh, organized or four leagues. And I just think that's cool. And that, that was like one of my favorite baseball cards. I just think he looks really awesome in that card (laughs) um any other uh baseball easter eggs on the new album mike Uh, or sports in general i guess i don't know do you sneak a go birds in there somewhere (laughs) no there's no i i do enough of that on the (laughs) internet (laughs) um there's maybe there's maybe a madden reference in there okay Okay, I, I can dig it. Um, Kate, uh, before I let you guys go here, I, I know Michael posts some skateboarding clips sometimes. Are you are you doing the skateboarding thing too? Uh, I have been told that before I learn to skateboard, I have to learn to buy wrist guards. Okay, yeah, that was a, that was a good tip that you guys gave Stefan uh, of Pop as well because I've seen some of the early yeah. clips compared to the later clips. Glad you guys are uh, are preaching safety uh, there first. Uh, okay, uh, Kate, are you you have any games coming up before you guys hit the road? That I'm attending in person? Yeah. Unfortunately, no. I'll be glued to my couch for a lot of it, but not at the stadium. All right. Um, well, hopefully we can. Uh, hopefully that'll change. You, you got a couple chances here before you guys uh, head out on the road. Sick Days is out September 22nd on Stomp Records. Uh, again, the Tilsonburg and Cornwall shows that weekend before you guys uh, hit the road for a U.S. tour in October. Mike, how you feeling, man? It's I, I know a lot of time and emotion goes into an album, and now you're kind of in the stage where you're just waiting for it to come out already. How you feeling? Yeah, I mean it's busy. It's uh, I'm looking forward to being on the road, and things will kind of become busy in a different way. But it's it's exciting to get out there again. And we have like I think we're going to announce dates later today, but we've got probably up until Christmas booked, and then next year even more. So awesome, it's exciting right now. Yeah, so people can keep an eye out for that on your socials. Pew. X3, P-K-E-W-X3, nice and straightforward, uh, of course. Mike Warren, Kate McLean, pew, pew, pew. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, guys. Yeah, thank you for having us. Mike Warren and Kate McLean of Pew Pew Pew, a terrific Toronto band. The song is called The Night John Buck Hit Three Home Runs. The album is called Sick Days. It's out next Friday, and keep an eye out for those tour dates uh, as well. I've gotten to know the, the Pew group a little bit over the years uh they're a they're a blast and huge huge not just toronto sports fans but sports fans in general um also that song obviously sent me down the the john buck rabbit hole as well as the 2010 blue jays rabbit hole if you are thinking back on that john buck three homer night uh travis snyder also homered that night and ricky romero had a pretty decent start on the mound it was probably a day where you were feeling pretty good about the 12 and 11 toronto blue jays oh this catcher they signed has three dingers ricky romero looks good 
Travis Snyder looks good. Uh, who's this Jose Batista guy who's off to a decent start to this season? Uh, it didn't end up that way. Obviously, that team did not make uh, the postseason. They won 85 games, but fun nonetheless. There's also uh, the weird bit of John Buck trivia in that he was once again a part of the organization at one point, um, but only very briefly. If you remember the chaotic winter of 2012, he was involved in two major trades. Uh, the Jays picked him up with Emilio Bonifacio, Mark Burley, Josh Johnson, and Jose Reyes in that big trade for Henderson Alvarez, Anthony DeScalfani, Yunel Escobar, Eddie Hacavaria, Jake Marisnik, and Jeff Mathis, and Justin Nicolino. Huge trade, lots of guys. And then the Blue Jays looked at it and they were like, you know what? John Buck would be nice to have back, but we're going to go out and acquire R.A. Dickey and we're going to acquire Josh Tolley and Mike Nikias with him. Uh, so here's John Buck. Here's Travis Dorno. Here's Noah Syndergaard. Here's Wilmer Bacara. Uh, yeah, John Buck involved in two of the biggest trades of that decade for the Toronto Blue Jays. And he played zero games for the Jays in between them. Those trades happening uh, about a month apart. That is a big offseason of... You got bored simulating through the days in the offseason and felt like tweaking your roster and, and making trades. Uh, obviously, those did not turn out super well for the Blue Jays, although we go through those prospects and, uh, you know, short of the Noah Syndergaard peak, you're not too bad, too upset about having, hey, Mark Burley for for a little bit. Jose Reyes was able to be turned into Troy Tulowitzki at some point. Um, all right, Dickie had some moments as well. It would have been fun to see John Buck Turn it back one more time. That season, by the way, uh, he finished with a career high 20 home runs and it was his only all-star appearance. So again, the band's Pew Pew Pew. The song is The Night John Buck Hit Three Home Runs. The album is Sick Days. It's out next Friday. Check all of that stuff out. Uh, thanks to Mike and Kate for coming on. We're going to take a break. We come back. Chris Black is going to join us in studio for the second hour. Uh, Chris Black next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a band called Dizzy. We just talked to Pew Pew Pew. Uh, I bring Chris Black in with Dizzy because I want to, before we talk actual Blue Jays stuff and get into the nitty gritty as usual, um, Chris Black is, in addition to coming on the show once a week and the, the stat and video threads at Down to Black on Twitter, he's also a producer of Blue Jays broadcasts. And there were some people curious about what is the process like, Chris, of last week you're on this show, I recommend a band to you. A couple days later, that band is our bumper music on a Toronto Blue Jays broadcast, in this case, Dizzy, a, a band from Oshawa. What is the process like for that? Uh the, the big secret that we try to hide as producers is that we don't do much work. Okay. We just get inspired <laughs> to try something, and then the people who do the actual work do it. So uh, in this example, um, you recommended them. I listened to them. Obviously, them being from Oshawa is a big draw for me, speaking as a <laughs> someone who was born and raised in the schwa. Um, and, yeah, just a big fan. And then we sent I sent the one of their songs to a great... Uh, producer, kind of like a, you know, for lack of a better term, he sources music for us. His name's Carson Illage. Um, and he's he's great. And literally within like, within a day, less than that, he had cleared it for use. And I don't know all the ins and outs and the details, but yeah, he cleared it. 
it was in the audio board by Friday, I think, and I think we used it that evening after I think on Varsho's catch. I think we did a yes Varsho up against catch up against break. the wall, yeah. Yeah, so it was just it's cool that it can come together like that. We I know me personally uh, as a producer, I know Carson. He does try to find Canadian music mm-hmm. as much as possible, not all the time, not exclusively, but when we can find good Canadian music that works. We do it, buddy. I got you covered. Then I'll, I'll just I'll send over the whole the whole Spotify playlist, uh, including the. Hey, I get asked this sometimes. There is a Jay's Talk Plus Spotify playlist where every song that I play, bringing someone in, uh, goes up because sometimes, obviously, people on the podcast side can't hear the music. In this case, we're talking about the Blue Jays broadcast. So apologies if you didn't hear the song coming in, but uh, that's part of it. you guys also. And when you had tweeted this out, um, someone replies like, "Well, what about?" Uh, the new hip song, I think it's called Bumblebee, uh, yeah. that appeared as well. And they, someone got tagged, and they're like, "Well, sports that asked," and we said yes. And it's sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's it's it, that it straightforward. That we, but sometimes it's not. We, I actually asked Carson and I just a quick story. We tried years ago. I think it was whenever the punch was the Bautista mm-hmm. Odor. The next time they faced each other, uh, I remember Dominic Gentili and I. We grabbed a song, a rural Alberta advantage again, Canadian mm-hmm. music. They covered Eye of the Tiger, but like in like this like slow kind of dramatic way, almost like an acoustic version. Um, We cleared it for use seven years ago or so, and I looked into getting it again, but it was, I I asked about it kind of too late. When you're clearing covers and with all sorts of different people to talk to, it does get more complicated. I do love that song if you haven't heard it it's uh, worth a listen another band who are as i understand it huge blue jays fans oh so, really yeah um, yeah i i've been i've seen those guys live so so many so times they're awesome spin magazine does this thing or they've done it the last couple years where they interview as many musicians as they can who are big baseball fans to make their predictions uh for the season um so like steve from pop is in there and yeah rural uh, alberta advantage show up in there as well it's actually it's a good way for me to brainstorm guests sometimes of like like i'm wearing a rap boy sweater today it's like Oh, they're playing the White Sox. The Rap awesome. Boys have a new song and they're throwing out the first pitch. Everything uh, ties together nicely. Uh, so another reason we lead with this quick music aside is because last night's game sucked and I wasn't super eager to uh, <laughs> to talk about it yet. So the Blue Jays uh, lose 6-3 to the Texas Rangers coming off of a 10-4 loss. Chris, we'll talk a, a bunch of the specifics here, of course. But given where things were entering the series where so much was in the Blue Jays' control. You take three out of this series, you have the tiebreaker, you're up three and a half on Texas, you're feeling unbelievable. Uh, the tiebreaker is now off the table. A split would only get you just back ahead of them. I don't I don't think you'd feel any of the same level of comfort. How big do these two losses feel to you? Uh, they do feel big. Um, I don't think it's sky is falling yet. I do think I did a, I remember before the series began, I did like a, a meme uh, a meme representation of how you could potentially feel depending on the result. Um, I do think a sweep would be kind of, uh, yeah, panic time. Um, I still, with the way these teams are finishing, I believe it's Seattle who goes Texas, Houston, Texas. To they finish. have seven against Texas for sure. Yeah, like, so I I still think, like, even if they can get a split, or even if they fall, even if they lose three or four here, I still think it's a control your own destiny because of that schedule thing. Now, it would still be kind of alarm bells in terms of if they do lose three or four, you know, they're not playing great heading into the last two plus weeks of the season. But yeah, the schedule is still structured in a way where 
They just need to take care of business. And the term I've been using is like, just keep it on the rails. And yeah, like if there is, if you are going to panic a bit, it's because it hasn't seemed fully on the rails for these two games. It was, it has felt particularly unraily is, is how it's felt. So um, look, the Jays gave up a, a big number on Monday. Chris Bassett wasn't as sharpest. Genesis Cabrera had his first really bad outing as a Blue Jay. I think, thank you. Um, and yesterday was fine-ish, not the bullpen's sharpest day either, but the big headline item through these two games is the Texas Rangers came in as a disaster when it comes to run prevention. Their bullpen had an ERA of six over the last month or so coming in. They'd blown 10 of the last 12 saves. They still haven't had a save opportunity in this series because the games haven't been close enough, but um, the Jays have not been able to take advantage of Texas's inability to prevent runs. And Dane Dunning has... Look, Dane Dunning's fine. If he's your sixth starter slash swingman, I think you feel pretty good about that. If he is starting the first game of a four-game must-win series, I don't think you feel you should feel pretty good about that. He gets into the seventh against the Jays. Max Scherzer, it takes an injury to chase him out of the game. And uh, yeah, the Toronto Blue Jays just have continued to be pretty quiet with the best. This coming off, by the way, over the four games entering this series, they only scored 17 runs over four games against Oakland and Kansas City, even though they won three of those games um, we'll get into some of the specifics, but man, does it, it feels not great to be back here again with the offense. Yeah. There's weird things happening offensively. Um, injuries obviously play a part in terms of belt and Chapman. Bichette, and Jansen. Yeah. And Jansen. I, I would say Jansen, even yeah. like Chapman, I guess is more, I'm feeling that more defensively than yeah. offensively given yeah. how he'd hit, but. but still just, they were incredibly healthy the first half, even first four months of the year. And they haven't been, that's certainly a factor as enough people have, have talked about, and I'm sure we'll get into, Bo and Vladdy have not been good this series. Um, I do think, you know, when the offense picked up, quote-unquote, over the last month, you know, the risk stuff picked up starting in August, um, there was a, I remember talking about this on our shows, talking about this on uh, in the Blue Jays' Twitter world, there was always a, spa- a, a factor of, hey, when these bats heat up, Guys, just keep in mind, it's it's going to be based at least partially in terms of the quality of competition mm-hmm. they're facing and going to Coors Field, playing poor teams. So there is some of that. And there, I do, like, Texas is a decent pitching team. Max Scherzer was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I do think there's a part of that. But, yeah, it's the offense just, this isn't, it's not their MO. They are not, they're not a team that's going to slug their way to wins. This isn't. 2015 this isn't even 2021 it's a different blue jays team they're not gonna they're gonna win games in tight fashions it's it puts a lot of pressure on a pitching staff that's been very very good if you're gonna try to win games four three instead of six four or something like that you know that's a that's way less margin for error so even three over six for hyunjin ryu or the odd night for chris bassett uh odd off night for chris bassett uh feels big so let's we'll we'll look at some you know there are some positives happening on on the offensive side so to tee up what we're going to talk about there's been a, a bit of a tweak in george springer's mechanics in addition to this just being Autumn George, he's uh, hey. Once you're once you're wearing a, a nice cardigan like that, George Springer gets hitting. Um, they obviously, you know, spent the the AAA guys and Kevin Biggio are all hitting well. But yeah, you mentioned it. People are going to want to talk about Bo, and they're going to want to talk about Vlad. And it's a lot. They're over sixteen through these first two games. Uh, we can even go back as far as uh, I pulled the numbers from August first to now, and during that time. That's 37 games for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He has a 702 OPS. 
He's been worth negative wins above replacement. He has hit below a league average standard, not league average for first base, below a league average standard over the last almost 40 games. Bo Bichette has had two IL stints in there, so maybe you don't want to ding him quite as much, but he's hitting a buck 96 and has two walks in 52 plate appearances. Uh, it has been a tough go for both of those guys. I am a little more willing to give Bo Bichette the playing through it, a stop and start explanation. Um, but when you look into what Bo Bichette has looked like around these IL stints, do you, are, are you kind of seeing the the downside here of having such an aggressive, obviously Bo Bichette always has to be aggressive. He has to be Bo Bichette. You can't ask him to go away from that, but it does kind of make the odd cold streak feel a little more pronounced. Yeah. We've talked about Bo in the past and while I kind of acknowledge and something that he's kind of said in the past of he doesn't need good swing decisions to be a good hitter. And I do agree. He's got some, you know, otherworldly talent. Uh, what I've said before, and I continue to believe is when he's got good swing decisions on top of all that talent, that's what makes his, his peaks bigger and his valleys shallower, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So when the, when the swing decisions aren't great, it makes the valleys deeper and the peaks a little bit lower. Um, that I don't think has changed with Bo. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't think we'll know really what was going on with him health-wise until the offseason. That's just one of those, you know, hockey. I mean, I think we can, yeah, we we can, can yes, read yeah. between the lines that exactly. he had a knee injury, he came back too quick, he started to have a quad thing, and then he was back off the IL in the minimum Pretty again. Quick, like, yeah. we can, but it, those are also things that, Exactly. If, if there's playing, an, yeah. if you're healthy enough to play, you're healthy enough for us to evaluate your performance. For sure. I also certainly your legs are a huge part of your mechanics and things like that. But I I think swing decisions might be the one thing that you would like. I I don't know that you're seeing the ball differently and thinking your plate appearances all that differently if you're banged up. But maybe there is a component of that. I think there is. Okay. I think I think swings and this this I think this ties into Guerrero as well. I think swings are driven by legs and hips and core and but all But the that decisions. Stuff. For sure. But what I'm saying is when your legs are strong, when your core is strong and all that, that gives you an extra whatever to mile per hour of whatever of bat speed. That means you can take a little bit extra time. And that like, so I think it's all connected related. There is, they're not public yet, but I know they're getting close. Bat to, speed. The bat speed stuff. So Baseball America has got the data, and, and J.J. Cooper wrote something up uh, yesterday. I wasn't going to uh, bring it up just because uh, we don't have the data to play around with yet, but it's coming. Well, it's this started, this is getting into the weeds, so I won't go too long on this, but you can actually, you know, there are places where we can find that data. It's not public public yet. Uh, because there are reasons why. And the savant people will tell you, yeah, it's not ready. We still need to. But I'm like, well, is it or not? Can I dive in? But anyways, uh, that's the weeds. Um, there are, yeah, I do think it can be all connected. That if if the leg, if your knee isn't right, if your hips aren't right, if something isn't right in your body, even if it's legs, can impact everything, can impact swing decisions, can Im impact all that stuff. But what stands out to me with, Bo and Vlad is what Texas has done to them, not only this series, but also the other series. I worked, I worked that series in June uh, in Texas. And when you look uh, combined, Texas has held Vladdy and Bo to a 154 average this season. That's like second lowest, I think, among all teams. Only Seattle's lower. And what stands out 
more than anything is fastball usage. They are not seeing fastballs against these guys. These guys are sticking to a game plan. I know they've got him, they got Bichette out with some fastballs in late in counts, but for the most part, when they face Bo and Vladdy, they're feeding a ton of non-fastballs, breaking balls, off-speed stuff. And that's the other thing that kind of stands out to me when you look at what teams like Kansas City, Oakland, Colorado, what they do versus a team in the playoff race. These good teams, and I, I get that Texas's pitching isn't otherworldly, but good teams, they will stick to their scouting reports, especially in big games. They will, if the if the scouting report says throw breaking balls away, breaking balls away, breaking balls away, that's what they'll do. And that's what we've seen so far is those guys are not seeing fastballs against this team. So you're saying that Vlad having an 817 OPS uh, against the teams without analytics departments might have something to do with it? Listen, if you can face the White Sox, the Rockies, teams like that that don't pay attention to stuff like this, or at least that's what the reports suggest. Um, no, we have that like on pretty good authority from like the mastheads and things like that. Like I think it's something Baseball America has dug in on. And yeah, the Rockies and White Sox are way over here. Where, well, we're split camera. They're way over here. Yeah, exactly. uh, and then the Dodgers and Rays are way over here. Yeah. And obviously there's there are more, look, spending on analytics or whatever you want to call it, baseball operations, a, a player development, the complex, whatever you want to, however you want to frame that stuff. It's not linear, but the outliers certainly look interesting when it's like, well, the Dodgers and Rays are at one end of the spectrum and the White Sox and Rockies are at the other end of the spectrum. This is another aside, but... White Sox with what's going on that like the change in flux, all that stuff in terms of leadership, they're kind of a high mid to high payroll, but without a lot of wins. That is a team I am keeping my eye on in the offseason. As a seller? As a, yeah, like just a, are they looking to get rid of people? Mm -hmm. Are they looking for a reset? Would Robert go anywhere? Would mm -hmm. Cease go anywhere? Could you... Aloy Jimenez, Juan Moncada, like there are, if if it's a buy low on those guys because it's a, you know, distressed asset and carries a salary. Exactly. Or if you use some financial might to say, hey, trade me Robert and we'll take player X that you want to get rid of. I think there are all sorts of options that you could do. And I love the idea of trading with teams who, as we were just talking about, don't pay a ton of attention to some of the more granular stuff. Well, maybe you also look over to new general manager Chris Getz and be like, "Hey, aren't you so fond of the ten games you played here? Wouldn't you like to? <laughs> wouldn't you like to do well by the city that embraced you for twenty eight plate appearances?" Um, no, it is an interesting one, and obviously that is a an off season conversation. But yeah, you look at things like, well, they owe Benintendi and Mancada and Jimenez and uh, Aaron Bummer and, and a bunch of other guys they owe money to. And if it's about clearing and it's like, it's Jerry Reinsdorf. It, would it surprise you if the edict is clear money until we're, we're good again? Like the, the bulls, even when they're good, don't spend into the tax. The this, White Sox have never been a, a super high payroll team. Well, you were just saying like, that is the thought process that I had looking at the contract page, like, like over and over again, over the last few weeks. Like I just, they're a team to watch, I think, in the offseason. Yeah, anyways. and again, Chris Getz, you just play that uh, play that <laughs> old card. Okay, so let's get back to, to Bowen Vlad here a little bit. So some of that is how teams are approaching them. Certainly, um, the you know, the unfortunate takeaway from that is that you're headed to playoff baseball if things go well here, and playoff baseball teams are going to be the teams on the better equipped end to attack what you're not doing well against. And we know, you know, not pitching Vlad fastballs is 
has been a better strategy than feeding him fastballs over the over the course of his career. He's not hit fastballs nearly as well this year. Also, um, how much do you think? And look, Houston has had a very specific approach with Bo Bichette in their games against him as well. There's not, you know, it's similar to the Gosman thing where, yeah, some teams lay off the splitter entirely and that's the key. Some teams try to jump on the splitter early and that ends up being the key. It's more, it's more about identifying one thing and executing it well than it is the book is out on this team. But when you look at Bo and Vlad in particular, do you worry at all that those two guys are maybe a little easier to game plan for than say a Corey Seager? Uh, I don't think Bo is easy to get, like, let's treat each of them individually. Bo is not easy to game plan for when he's right. I get the chase stuff, but he... 11th percentile chase. Yeah, we know he chases, but... But he makes contact with everything. <laughs> yeah, and last year, last year at this time when he was on his insane hot streak, mm-hmm. it was mostly driven by demolishing breaking balls when teams were trying to spin them up out in... Uh, down and out of the zone. He was laying off those ones. If they threw anything near the zone, he was sitting spin, identifying spin, demolishing it. He came into this season, I think. I haven't spoken to him directly about this. I think he knew that teams would be thinking, let's bust him fastballs. He was demolishing breaking balls last year. So he demolished inside fastballs. And demolished isn't the right word, but he knew they were coming, and he would just splice them into the outfield and was racking up hits early in this season. I think he's incredibly hard to game plan against because I think he can hit anything. Yeah, um, and the numbers bear this out, by the way. Even if a team has peppered him with more with fewer fastballs lately, he has a 6-11 slugging this year on off-speed stuff, 449 on breaking balls. That's a little down from last year, but league-wide, if you're slugging 449, and, and some of the expected stats are even better there, if you're slugging that against breaking balls, you're, you're hanging in okay. Yeah, so I with Bo, I don't think he's an easy game plan. With Vladdy, when he's right, I don't think... He's an easy game plan either because... It's been a minute, though, so... Correct. Like, he can, and, you know, we've heard Siddle talk about this. I thought Buck was outstanding on our broadcast last night talking about it late in the game. And he he had one he had one short line, and this is, this is maybe the most common talking point when people talk, uh, Vladdy, is, is he pulling the ball? Is he pulling the ball in the air? Where is he hitting it? If teams are going to work him away, breaking ball away, breaking ball away, he is at his best if that's the pitching strategy, driving balls to right center. And Buck talked about that. When he was at his best in 2021, that's where he's driving the ball. Can he still do it mechanically, all that stuff? That's not my world. I don't know. But I just know that this is what Texas is doing to him this series. We can look at it. This is what Texas has done to him all season. It's breaking balls away, breaking balls away. If that's going to be the strategy, we can't be talking about, hey, you got to pull the ball in the air. Because if you try to pull those balls in the air, they're either grounders to short or they're lazy flies. So this is about base hits to right field, base hits to the gap in right center. So can he make that adjustment? We'll see. It's uh, It's been interesting to watch. And, you know, I guess if you're looking for one tiny shred uh at least so far this month and it certainly didn't feel like this because i thought some of the swing decisions on monday haven't been great but for the half month of september we have here his chase rate is actually down on fastballs breaking balls and off speed again maybe that's the element of he was facing a lot of bad pitchers who it's easier to pick that stuff up up against and they don't locate on the shadow part of the zone nearly as well um, but august was 
maybe the most discouraging month I can ever remember for Vlad in terms of those swing decisions and certainly uh, the, the first two games of this series. So when it does come to Vlad, um, look, someone said something to me the other day uh, at a, an event I was speaking on, and I don't mean this in a like nitpicky way or to, to I, I don't mean it any kind of way other than it was striking to me that it got brought up that, hey, over the last X number of games, you know, Vlad has been able to do this. And the I think the stat was 467 slugging or something like that. And it just like, it blew me away that that was considered to be a stronger streak rather than the absolute baseline. He's slugging 429 on the year. Even last year in a down year, he slugged 480. If we are at the point where a 467 slugging over a 15 or 20 game stretch, whatever the the stat that was thrown at me was, um, I think the bar has been lowered too low for the the type of player that this team needs Vlad to be. We talked about peaks and valleys with Bo, yeah. and I baseball is a sport of peaks and valleys. They're sure. going to be, you're going to go Look through. at Springer season, Varsho season, it's Vigio. It's everyone. It's 162. It's long. It's a grind. You're going to have peaks and valleys. But what makes, what determines those end of season numbers are the height of those peaks, like I said, and how deep those valleys go. And right now, for whatever reason, Vladis, if you look at, Savant has all these pages that will give you a rolling average mm-hmm. of whatever stat you want. His peaks are lower than they were even last year especially 2021 comparatively, the peaks just aren't the same. He's still a good hitter. We say this all the time, and I mean it. We showed a graphic a day or two ago, maybe on the weekend. Like, there's only four or five guys in the league at Vladdy's age who are 20 and 80, 20 home runs and 80 80 RBIs. And it's Julio, it's Paredes, it's Vladdy, it's Soto, and somebody else that I can't remember. Um, Corbin Carroll, maybe? No, it wasn't Carroll. I can't remember. But regardless, he's still productive. And secondly, and Dan did this with Buck on air when he asked, he he quizzed Buck on who the youngest player was on the Jays roster. And with all these young players up and Horowitz and Schneider and all, all these guys, Vladdy's younger than all of them. And we all tend to forget that. That doesn't change the conversations we should be having about him. We still... He's hit a peak that pretty much none of them can hit. Um, But it's just, it's context and it's a good reminder when we get frustrated with him as fans that he is still the youngest player on this team, which is crazy to me. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I have a little more time for that note in baseball than I do say basketball where so much of how we're projecting a guy forward is how many minutes have you played in a high program or at the NBA level or Euro league or something like that. The actual experience is a bigger factor than just the age, but part of what's made Vlad, you know, part of what made his projections so robust and his early arb number so robust and things like that is that, yeah, he had been doing it all at a, at a young ish age, similar to, you know, Juan Soto, even when Juan Soto had a down stretch, Bryce Harper, when he had a downstretch early in his career, was relative to uh, the age that they were doing it at. Now, uh, I would say a steady decline at this age is also uh, troubling. And to put, you know, you mentioned the rolling averages. Another thing we can do is stat head on baseball reference. Let's just look at, hey, I punched in 15 games. So you can see every 15 game span that a player has ever had. His best 15 game span this year ranks 123rd in his career. Yeah, like, and that's now. That's this exactly is a funky way of doing no, that the, exercise, yep. but 123rd. His best stretch this season was the 123rd best 15 game segment of his career, and it was at the very, very beginning of the season. 
Yeah, in April, he looked good. That was the best we've seen of Vlad this year. We like the swing decisions. Um, I do think something you brought up, the swing rate or the chase rate in September, it is better. I know the quality of competition isn't as good, but it seemed like that was a point of emphasis uh, to you to borrow a term from a, that a buddy uses quite often. Um, I do think, and after one of his poor games, maybe a couple weeks ago, Schneider was asked about Vladdy in his post uh, game availability, and his answer was swing de- mm-hmm. swing decisions. When he makes good swing decisions, he's better. So I do think there's been a focus. We saw a little bit of for a while on the weekend and even this at the beginning of this series, a bit of, you know, some Juan Soto type takes where he's trying to tell himself, no, 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 I'm not going to chase that. I'm not going to swing at that. I'm all for that when you're also producing like, but it's just, I, I do think he's trying, but something as Joe and Buck have alluded to something isn't right mechanically. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, obviously these things are related, right? If you, if you, if you're a hitter and you're taking those swings, you know, something's off mechanically. Does that change your swing decisions or how you're seeing a ball or, or what you, you know, how that process goes mentally because you're trying to account for that. I don't really know. I don't have an explanation for why everything, a ball width off the plate outside looks over the plate to him lately. It feels like at least anyway, um, that I, if we isolated the chase rate to outside stuff, I feel like it would be much higher. Um, I've got to take a, a closer look at that to make sure that what I'm think I'm seeing is actually accurate. But yeah, some of that stuff is like, okay, well, if mechanically you're worried about being able to get the stuff on the outer edge, one approach would be, well, let just leave that stuff until there's two strikes. But another approach would be, well, I got to stay on top of that and jump early and make that decision quicker because I can't get to it or something like that. Yeah. And the other thing that stands out to me and maybe I don't know exactly, like, there's no way of gauging everyone's perception of Vladdy, but he works in season, like, the parts that we see as much as we can around the field, around the, you can tell he works hard. He's in the cage a lot. He's a, he, he loves hitting, and there's a lot of guys like that, and I get, you could say that about a lot of baseball players, but there are certain guys who are cage, you know, they're gym rats in, in basketball, and I think Vladdy is one of those guys. Bo's one of those guys for sure. I think Vladdy's one of those guys too. We don't see everything for sure, but he, I, I can't say I guarantee, but I, I feel like, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, you can't grind your way out of a slump. You can't effort your way out of a slump in baseball. He's certainly trying. Like We see them a lot in the cage early, so it's it's tough to see because this isn't, the time of year when you want to be going through slumps. Like I think the times of years that are where slumps are most noticed start of the year when everyone can see the numbers on <laughs> up on the jumbotron. And that's, if you get off to a slump, like that's what you're seeing every I day. I mean, look how much Matt Chapman's hot April allowed the overall numbers to not quite catch up to how <laughs> exactly. much he'd been struggling, right? Yeah, exactly. And the other place where they're noticed is late in the year when we're all paying attention mm-hmm. to every plate appearance to every swing decision. I think everyone has forgotten how Whit Merrifield's first half of the season went at this point because yeah. the, the Valley has been so low of late. Yeah, again, peaks and valleys. Like, yeah. Whit Merrifield carried this team for a few weeks, and now he's struggling. He's also banged up a little bit. Seems like they're all banged up a little bit. So Hey, it's uh, it's September in, in the major I'm leagues. I'm banged up. I'm banged up, and I'm a TV producer, so I, I get it. But, yeah, it's it's an interesting time for us to be focusing on their two best hitters struggling. Like, it's not what you expect. What you do expect 
is George Springer killing it this time of year. Uh, We will take a break. We'll get a little bit more positive on the other side. We'll take a look at what's gone right for George Springer of late. Both, uh, you know, hey, maybe he's a pumpkin spice and cardigan guy, and that's the whole explanation. Maybe there's been a mechanical tweak to help him reach this other level of late Uh, as well. We'll also set up tonight's game. Jordan Montgomery against Yusei Kikuchi. And, man, Jay's got to do a better job in how they're attacking Corey Seager. All that's next as Chris Black stays with us on Jay's Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Chris Black, Sportsnet producer at Down to Black on Twitter, still with us here. And Chris, I've always said if uh, you're measuring any shortstop's performance, well, Arky Vaughn's 1935 season is the the high <laughs> watermark. Obviously, um, I've always said that it comes up on the show all the time. And, and Corey Seager comes into Roger Center. He has five hits, uh, three of them for extra bases over the first two days, and he nudges that OPS up there. Where are you at in the Corey the Look, it's all Blue Jays Twitter has been talking about MLB Twitter. Corey Seager versus Archie Vaughn, 1935. Where where do you land? Yeah, it's insane. It's We were just talking about this briefly, but second best OPS ever by a shortstop right now for, for Seager. Like it's, we, I think personally, all the hitters I've seen this year, he's the best hitter I've seen this year. When you couple aggression, swinging at pitches to hit, he's improved his chase. Like, when you look at his Savant page, it's just a bunch of red bars, he, 99th percentile, et cetera, et cetera. He's also, Jay Jaffe had a great piece at Fangraphs uh, the other day, and we talked to him about it a little bit yesterday. The ability to pull so many balls in the air without sacrificing your ability to hit and drive balls the other way into center field. Like, that is, and Jay said, he's like, yeah, I asked, like, that. that's pretty rare and jay was like yeah it's what makes an elite hitter elite the ability to do damage the way you want to do damage and if something to pull in the air is not there you rope it the other way and bounce it off the left center field wall in his case i'm doing my hand gestures as a righty (laughs) here even though he's a lefty um so what have you made how the jays have approached obviously look sometimes a really good hitter is going to get five hits off you over two games it's Corey seager like you said the the stack cast page is maxed out what have you seen in how the Jays are trying to navigate that and where they're maybe coming short? Um, first of all, it's not just this series. Again, similar to Bowen Vlad, I looked at this series earlier in the year when they faced them. He's got these types of stats are usually reserved for teams within your own division. He has more hits against the Blue Jays this year than any other team. That's usually a like you face somebody in your division, you see a stat like that. it's only been five games, right? Yeah, exactly. He's got 12 hits uh, against them. When you look at where those hits are, it's a lot of pitches in the heart of the zone, and it's a lot of good pitches. Like, when you look at the pitch he hit off Cabrera um, for a hit a couple days ago, it was right on the black on the inside corner. Uh, He's got about three or four hits against the Jays this year right on the black on the inside corner. And so when when I dove into what teams have done against Seager specifically this year, which teams have had success, what is Toronto doing differently or similarly to other teams. The Jays aren't working. If you look at heat maps, they're throwing the ball on average as low as pretty much any team. 
against him. They're not working up in the zone. They're not trying to get him out with fastballs up and above the zone. And when you look at what he does and what where he's most productive, he's productive. It's interesting. Usually we look at in and out uh, for how to get guys out and where to find success against him. When you look at Seager's stuff, if you look at the heart of the strike zone and expand those vertical limits in and out, he's the best hitter in baseball, and it's not particularly close. So anything kind of, you know, uh, knees to belly button, like he is best hitter in baseball, it's not particularly close. But if you change that eye level, if you go down into the zone, if you go below that or above that, there are outs to be had. So I don't – I know if you look, I understand why they go in on him. I can see – the logic, and I can even see some of the numbers, why that makes sense. But teams that have had success against him this year have worked um, up, have changed his eye level, essentially. Work it up in the zone, up at the top of the zone, and mix it up down. I don't love that inside corner just because even if it has uh, brought success for certain teams, it's not for the Jays. Maybe he's looking for it. Maybe he knows that's the game plan. So I would like to see with Kikuchi tonight fastballs up and out of the zone challenge him see if he chases up there i don't love the idea of anything in the heart of the play with seager because he will swing and he will do damage i'm very nervous about flipping kikuchi flipping some early count breakers uh over the heart of the plate with uh, seager so i like the idea of pitches up to try and get him out kikuchi does at least do a, a good job trying to get that curveball to the low outside corner but yeah if that's crossing the plate to that low outside corner and seager's swing plane that could be uh, a lot of trouble it is worth noting too seager only a 916 OPS against lefties. So uh, pretty big platoon splits in terms of points of OPS, but 916 lefty on lefty very, very is uh, pretty, pretty damn good. Yeah, and Kikuchi's been good against lefties this year. It is mm-hmm. a matchup I'm, I'm interested in watching, obviously. I think we all are. But yeah, we've, what that breaking ball that you just talked about, kind of sweeping towards the outside corner, what Seeger is good at is he can, if he's expecting that, he can kind of get the bat head out early and he will poke it down the right. He will pull it not for a huge power, but he can pull those pitches down the line, especially again, if he's expecting that pitch from a lefty to kind of that breaking ball over his shoulder, breaking over the plate. So it's an interesting matchup, but yeah, I'd like to see it's kind of similar to when Mountcastle was wearing them out just in terms of just change his eye level. I'm not saying hit the guy, make, (laughs) make him move his feet. Pitch inside, pitch up, move his feet, make him, don't let him be comfortable in the box. So that's what I would look for for the last couple of games. This is where I wish we had um, richer data that wouldn't require us to download a whole bunch, a giant CSV of pitch by pitch data of, you know, sequencing. Hey, you talk about changing the eye level. What does that look like pitch to pitch if you can execute changing the eye level versus just, hey, I'm going to come up here and I'm going to work high and I'm going to work low? Because, yeah, in addition to winning a batting title and having the second best OPS for, uh, a shortstop ever. He's got he's got a pretty discerning eye when he needs to as well. The other side of this matchup, Jordan Montgomery on the hill. Um, we'll we'll talk about him in in a minute here. There's nothing particularly interesting about Jordan Montgomery. Kind of just a steady, slightly above average guy. He's going to face George Springer in the first at bat of of this game, and that is with the exception of David Schneider, the most dangerous spot in the Blue Jays lineup uh, of late. We joke 
a little bit about George Springer always turning it on. Not even joke because he it's pretty well backed up that he turns it on uh, this time of year. Like we're looking at a large career sample now where September and October are really good months for him in the playoffs. He's been, you know, he has a lot of playoff experience and his OPS is about 50 points higher than, than his career regular season OPS. Uh, I don't think that's a clutch gene necessarily, but when you are in your thirties and you're able to do this, maybe there is something about knowing your body and knowing how to peak at the right time. But Chris, you've also seen George Springer be able to make some adjustments in what he's doing at the plate beyond just, Hey, it's, it's autumn George Springer. Yeah. Um, so us in the truck and Hazel, we kind of noticed something in kind of late August. Um, he changed and we might do this on the broadcast tonight. Um, he changed his setup at the plate. So his pre swing setup. And that, that's, it's funny. We, kind of get distracted by this stuff sometimes these guys make changes a lot they tinker Mm -hmm. but usually the hitting position is still the same but again we've done this with varsho before with the toe tap some other things but if they do something they change something and it allows them to feel more comfortable if it improves their swing decisions then yeah i don't really care what the you know if it just helps them be better great do it um so late august uh about it was the cleveland series um, so he's got about 15 games worth of, he changed his pre-swing setup, standing a little more upright, bat resting on his shoulder a little bit more, a little bit more open. Um, and Hazel spoke to him. Uh, I don't know the exact details of their conversation. She'll present it tonight maybe, but if you just look at the numbers from that first day where we think we saw the change, he's hitting 328 with a 440 on base and a 960 OPS. So, those are the types of things we've talked about this before. Those are the types of things I like because I don't feel like the starter endpoint is arbitrary. It's tied to a change, a mechanical change. Um, he seems more relaxed. It seems like he's uh, there's a little less power in what in his swing. I, I don't know. The swing seems simpler. If that, but I honestly, if you're going to have a 960 OPS, I don't care if you're not swinging for the fences all the time. So uh, his swing decisions have been really, really good. He seems comfortable at the plate. And, yeah, it seems like there's been a tiny shift of pre-swing setup, even if the swing and everything all uh, around that is all the same. Um, so when it comes to Springer, and obviously that you, you just laid out a, a pretty good case for w- what's going on there in terms of, hey, there, there's a, an obvious change here. Um, one thing that, you know, in diving into the data instead of the numbers, one thing that came up a little bit for me was that he his and not to go back to chase rate for everyone. It's not the only thing, but his chase rate on fastballs has dropped dramatically in August and September. Um, we know that George Springer is a, a fastball hitter. But there does seem to be a little more selectivity in, in which ones he's going after. Maybe an acknowledgement that pitchers are going to try to entice him with fastballs just outside of the zone. Like the rate of fastballs he's seeing hasn't really changed a ton. It's actually up a tiny bit uh, from where it was dur- during his slump. So um, I was I was wondering what you thought of that, and if you've seen something in you know Springer being aggressive still, but on the right types of fastballs. Sometimes chase rate, especially if there's a big difference between a fastball chase rate and a breaking ball chase rate, sometimes that's just a sign, hey, he's looking fastball. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for it and you can identify where it is and kind of be sitting off, like, and that can sometimes lead, if you're sitting or looking fastball quite a bit, that can sometimes lead to high chase on breaking balls. Um, So 
I haven't seen it. The one thing I would tie to is what I said before is I do think that he's less uh, inclined or less, he's not looking as much to, you know, get the bat head out early, drive the ball over the fence. I think he's trying to make really good swing decisions. I think he's trying to get on base. I think he's doing everything. You know, he dropped out of the leadoff spot for a bit. He's been a fantastic leadoff hitter for the last couple of weeks. And so, you know, this might even be like a a new, uh, you know, the kind of Springer we might see for the next couple of years where it's a little less power, but the swing decisions in the on-base are maybe even better than what we've seen in the past. And I, and I think we'd all be okay with it. And I wonder, too, if, like, obviously George Springer has been a tremendous leadoff hitter because, in part, he has the second most leadoff home runs ever. And as much as Marcus Semien and Mookie Betts want to want to make plays for those uh, for those stats as well, um, you know, I, I wonder, too, if that makes him a slightly... It makes him more stable as a leadoff guy, being more of a an OBP-driven guy. Um, obviously, you'll take home runs, of course, but the tough part was, you know, to do the peaks and valleys things again. His valleys were, like, pretty low OBP valleys for a guy who gets the most plate appearances on the team. Yeah, and he's another guy where, again, we need to evaluate if he's in the lineup, but he's always been a guy where even if he's in the lineup, it can sometimes seem as if he's managing bumps and bruises. We yeah, saw the I elbow. mean, he's going to play the second-highest... Uh, game total of his career. Yeah, and that's been a big win for them, I think, mm-hmm. moving him to a corner outfield spot, keeping him in the lineup. Three uh, more games. Yeah, that's be been a win. Number two. I, I certainly think that's been, like, very helpful to move him out of center field. We saw him move to center yesterday for his first action of the season and get a ball hit to him on the first pitch. Um, so, yeah, it's. I think I'm more encouraged by what the next – I know we're not talking big picture yet, but I'm more encouraged of late on – what the next year or two could mean for, for Springer. George Springer, uh, other than six Nathan Lucas innings, uh, the only other player to play center field other than Kiermaier and Varsho so far this year. So that's a, that's a fun a fun wrinkle to look. Obviously, the Jays have had to, by triage and by the nature of so many guys coming up who play a bunch of positions, have had a ton of guys play just about every position, except, weirdly, center field, where... Um, you know, Varsh, or, uh, Lucas and Springer have a combined eight innings and catcher. They've only needed three. Kirk and Jansen have both had IL stints. Jansen's had multiple and they have only used three catchers, which I got to go back through the history of this team. That's got to be rare in the history of, the, of any team, really, to only use three catchers over the course of the year. For sure. And those um, the center field stuff is interesting. I looked up the other day. Um, because their defensive run saved at that position has been outstanding. Mm-hmm. And literally, I think it's only one or maybe two teams have ever had better defense by that metric in the 20 years of defensive run saved. And I think the number one was a Kiermaier-led Tampa Bay Rays <laughs> team. So, Of course it was. Yeah. Uh, of course it was. Okay, uh, quickly before we let you go here, Chris, I know you got to get down to uh, the Dome. But Jordan Montgomery on the hill tonight, uh, a lefty for this Rangers team, and I kind of teed it up before. He is a guy who almost nothing stands out. The velocity doesn't stand out. The batted ball stuff doesn't stand out. His stat cast page is basically all, like he's painting in shades of gray. Nothing is outlier enough to get red or blue. Uh, So I guess, what do you make of that? And as much as this lineup has struggled, given who's hitting well-ish right now and what you can do lineup-wise, do you like this group a little bit better against a lefty? I like that. Some of these guys have track records of success against him, and that doesn't always matter. But I think in this situation, 
He's a former AL East guy. They faced him on opening, not opening day, the opening series of the year uh, when he was still a member of the mm-hmm. Cardinals. Uh, Kirk, when we thought the Cardinals were good and that yep. series was like, a, oh, a tough series. Yep. But, uh, you know, that's a good team. Yeah, exactly. Oops. <laughs> uh, Kirk's hit a home run against them. Vladdy's got one. And I think Bo's got two against them. Yeah. So they've got, they have track records of success. This is a guy where I think he'll be living outside he'll come in he'll show in i think you'll see a lot of kind of pitches down and away seeing if they can keep doing what they've been doing to vladdy same with bo and if again i know people would prefer pulled home runs we all like home runs everyone likes balls leaving the park but with this guy if we see some base hits early that are going right up the middle or to right center I think that'll be a sign that some good things could happen. Uh, in addition, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, a decent strategy in general for what you're saying. Also, if you look at the entire sample of the entire team and put it together, they've hit 300 off of Jordan Montgomery in 107 plate appearances. So, um, you know, they haven't hit him for a boatload of power. You, like you said, Bo has a, a pair of home runs and there are a couple others, but they have hit him for batting average uh, really, really well. And, and then, you know, you, you wonder is this a Jonah Heim down day? Uh, if it is, well, Jonah Heim's one of the best catchers in baseball controlling the run game and, and throwing guys out above expected based on on what's going on with the pitcher. Maybe that's a day where you're a little, if Jonah Heim's not in there, maybe it's a day you're a little more eager to, if you get a guy on base, run a little bit, play the hit and run game that we've seen them use at times. Uh, speaking of that before, this is not the hit and run game, but the... It was very, I meant to ask you earlier when you mentioned how passionate Buck was about something else earlier, uh, the Espinal <laughs> go decision. Just like, I know he ended up safe there, but game situation, that, that's got to be a hold, right? Probably. Um, you know, I've kind of learned like the more baseball we watch, these guys aren't going to make perfect decisions every time. I would and... like them to make good decisions <laughs> more often though. Yeah, exactly. Their base running. Listen, like uh, this is something we've said before. I thought they were going to be a top 10 base running team this year. They haven't. They're bottom 10. It's a little inexplicable. And I still think it ties back to guys just trying to make a little bit, trying to do a little too much, a little too often. So it's not, it's never like a egregious decision, or at least most of the time. But it's just, hey, maybe I can squeeze, maybe I can stretch this single into a double. So, yeah, no, I thought I thought Buck was bang on with that as well. Um, but yeah, I, they come; these mistakes are coming from good spots. But I think, yeah, we need to see fewer of them over the last however many games we have left. Yeah, uh, not a lot of games <laughs> left. Uh, Seventeen, I believe, is the uh, is the number. Chris Black, I know you got to go down to the dome. Thanks for taking the time out this morning, buddy. Anytime, anytime. See you, uh, Chris Black at Down to Black. On Twitter, producer at Sportsnet. Of course, thanks to him to, for coming on. Thanks to Mike Warner and Kate McLean of Pew 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 as well. Make sure you check out their song, The Night John Buck Hit Three Home Runs. Uh, thanks to Caitlin McGrath for coming on a little earlier as well. It's Yusei Kikuchi against Jordan Montgomery tonight, 7 p.m. down at Rogers Center. We'll see what that crowd looks like after two uh, lower crowd total nights. I will be down there. Uh, me and a couple of the other uh, Sportsnet people are heading down, including Sam McKee, who's on next with Brent Gunning here. Uh, Blair and Barker have you as usual. 
in the five to seven slot. They'll also have Jay's talk for you uh, after the game. Uh, thanks to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass as well. Jay's need, uh, need this one pretty badly. They've already lost the tiebreaker. They have lost the extra ground they had on Texas in the standings. They need to take the next two here to leave this series still ahead of Texas. You don't want to be leaving things to where, Randall Grichuk against Trent Thornton is impacting your season again like it did on Monday. Uh, the Jays' window to be in control of their own destiny is shrinking just a tiny bit here. Yes, there is the Texas-Seattle game still ahead and some games against Houston, but uh, the amount you directly impact the team you're chasing, uh, it's out after these next two games. So Jays got to get it going. Uh, Kikuchi, Montgomery, McKeon, Gunning next. Next.